Good morning, Ridgepoint Church. How are you doing this morning? Good. That's kind of casual. I like that. Hopefully you're having a good morning. We're really, really glad you're here. Uh, listen, I had a chance to do this a little bit last week, but I want to be able to redo it again today. But just on behalf of my family, I want to thank our church uh, for being so generous and being so just servant-minded over the course of the last couple of weeks, especially yesterday for Mom's memorial service was yesterday. And just my dad was blown away. We had a big group of people that that traveled over and really helped out in serving over there. They needed a lot of help there setting up and everything. So I just want to extend, especially on behalf of my dad, he was really kind of blown away by the whole thing. He said, make sure you tell your church just thank you for yesterday. So on behalf of my family, thank you guys, everyone, for what you did. Uh, But we are in the midst of a series right now. We're asking a big question. What's the point? What's the point behind some of the stuff that we do? And, And we shared this last week, but sometimes people walk into church, especially people who are unfamiliar with how church kind of happens, how church rolls, they walk into church and they kind of, they're, they're, they're taken aback and they're not sure how does this work and, and where do you go. And, and sometimes, let's just be honest, I said this last week, but sometimes we're honest, churches can just do some goofy things. And it's one thing if it's on accident. Last week we shared some stories and we actually had some stories up on stage last week where we did some things on accident, didn't mean to come out the way it did and, and it did. And, and sometimes accidents can be forgiven. But what about when the church does things on, on purpose that just seems silly, and why is it that you do that, or why is it that you fight about these things that don't matter at all? In fact, I did some, just some studying on some different sites, and just some different things that churches have done in the past. Now, these are real-life examples. Uh, these aren't made up. This isn't satire. But these are real things that happened that churches got mad about. They had fights about. Sometimes they had developed bylaws about these things. So these are really, really big deals. So check these things out. Number one is this. The church had an argument over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Like they literally had a fight. Like, okay, we, we got to settle. We're going to have in the bylaws. Like an inch and a half is okay, but if it gets longer than that, Adam Novak, I'm looking at you. If it gets longer, we're, we're going to have to trim that, that beard up a little bit. Uh, so they had a fight over that. Uh, the second thing that another church had a fight about was they had a fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I wonder who took that, took that picture anyway. Like, is, is that a real thing? Like, they fought about that, though. Um, another church had this big business meeting. They had a big fight over the fact that their church budget, this giant church budget, was off by 10 cents. And they had a fight about what happened to the 10 cents until someone finally stepped up and gave a dime and said, here, we'll take care of this right now. We fight about the silliest things. Uh, One church during communion had a fight uh, because they had served cran grape juice instead of pure grape juice. That's not pure. You can't serve that. Like, we fight about the silliest things. This is my favorite. One church had an argument over whether the church should allow deviled eggs at their potluck meal. And they said, we don't even really like the word pot luck. We're going to call it pot blessing because we don't believe in luck either. <laughs> Goofy things. Final one. This is more of a current one, obviously. But a church had a disagreement about whether or not to serve gluten-free communion bread. <laughs> Some people are like, yes, we have to do that. I, I get you, gluten-free people out there. And, but, but listen, here's the thing. And, here, and, and here's why this seems so silly. Like, we laugh at those. But, but for some churches... This is like seriously what they get really upset about and uptight about. And then what happens is that you and I, we invite friends to come to church. And they walk in and we're fighting about whether or not the grape juice is pure grape juice or not. Or we're at a a pot blessing and and we're fighting about whether or not to have devil food cake. Like it's silly stuff. And and the church walks in and says, are you guys really fighting about that? Like like is that really worth your time with all the other major things going on in the world? 
we fight about things that aren't in the Bible. We fight about things that are just our preferences. And the church that is lost and dying, when we get a chance to make an impact, they walk in our doors and they walk out and they say, that right there is why I don't get connected. Now, every once in a while, Jesus teaches us to do some things that might seem a little bit out of line with what culture is kind of, kind of dictating. And so because of that, we want to do a series where we say, okay, there are some things that from Scripture we should be doing. These aren't goofy, silly things, but these are serious things that we should be doing as a church. And that as we start to do those things, sometimes we have to explain it. When we sit down and do communion, every time we do communion together as a church, we are careful to explain what communion is about and why we do it. Because there might be someone walking in for the first time who that's so unfamiliar to them. And they come in and they're like, I don't understand all this stuff. It seems a little bit weird. And we say it might seem weird, but let us explain why we do it. There's significance to it. There's times Jesus calls us to do things. And we just want to do our best for the person who's, who's a seeker who comes in for the first time and explain, here's why we do some of the things that we do. But also for those of us who have been a part of church for some time, it is a great refresher, a great reminder to say, okay, and also these should be the things that if you've been going to church for some time, especially if you've become an rich point for some time, that we really get behind and say, yes, that fuels the very thing that we do. So whether you're brand new, this might be brand new to you and it might be fresh, or if you've been around for a while, this will be a refresher for you and just a reminder, here are some of the things we do and here's why we do them. Now last week we kicked this series off uh, by using two words, build and bring. This is our, our evangelism strategy, our, our outreach strategy, our, our church growth strategy. Is saying that we want to reach out to people, let them know that they matter. If they matter to God, they should matter to us. And so our strategy behind reaching people is called build and bring. Build a relationship and, and bring them to church. Build a relationship and bring them to Jesus and share your faith. And we say that when everything that we do as a church is predicated upon God's word, that we believe that this right here contains the power of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of who Jesus is and what he did. And we said once we have at our, in our grasp the gospel, the gospel is empowering, it's emboldening, and it's exclusive. We have this message that is very exclusive. And we said it is now our responsibility to do something with that, to take it with us and to say that we have to, once we have the gospel, once we understand that, that ultimately that we're saved through the gospel, but this idea that saved people serve people. You see, I, I get to a spot in my life where I'm going to read some scripture, and, and if we take that too lightly, we think, man, this is really kind of simple, and, and it really isn't. If you have your Bibles, if you grew up at church, you're probably familiar with these verses. But if you have your Bibles, real quick, we're going to begin in Ephesians chapter 2, eventually learn, turning to Luke chapter 9. But Ephesians 2, there are two verses that if you grew up at church at all, you probably were familiarized with these verses early on. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, it says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So Paul here is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, listen, if you want to know what salvation is about, if you want to know what it means to truly be saved, it's not about works, it's not about being a good person, it's not about going to church or going on mission trips or singing songs really loudly. It's not about any of those things. You've been saved by grace, through faith. It's only because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ that's the only source of our salvation. He says, don't confuse the two things. It is not your own doing. Our faith being saved is not because we're good people or do any of those things. Our faith is based entirely upon what Jesus already did for us. And so he says, this is the, the premise of our salvation. It's only by grace through faith. 
It is not your own doing because it's a gift of God, not something that can be earned. We can never do anything to earn a gift. It's a free gift, a gift that's offered to us. Verse 9 continues in that vein. It says, not a result of works. Our salvation is not based upon the good stuff that we do. Not of works so that no one may boast. It's not so we can sit there and say, man, we're a really good church and the man can sing really well and sounds really good and we do a lot of good stuff in the community and then sit back and say, man, I'm so thankful we're going to heaven now because of all the good stuff that we did. Paul writes and says that's not it at all. Our faith is not at all based upon the works. Otherwise, we could walk around and say, yeah, we're good people. That's all that matters. But we're not here to lift up our kingdom. We're here to lift up, truly lift up the kingdom of Jesus. And so Paul writes, says, listen, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did. And we should be lifting him up and, and his atoning work. That's what our mission should be about. Well, some people look at these verses and say, that is, that is incredible. Jesus died for us, and all it takes is salvation in him. And now I know at the end of my life, whatever that looks like, at the end of my life, I pull out this get-out-of-jail-free card, and I think, man, I'm saved now. I'm going to heaven. That's all that matters. I can go now and do whatever I want. Like, legitimately, and Paul actually addresses that in some of his writings in the New Testament. Some people thought, hey, we're saved. We can go do whatever we want now. This is a freedom to go and, and just be absolutely free, not realizing that some of the things that we think are free are actually the things that enslave us. And some people think, okay, now that I'm saved, I can do, go do what I want. But to that, if we stop Ephesians 2, 8, 9, without reading the very next verse, we miss a huge portion of this idea of what happens once we are saved, what the gospel does to us. Because there's no doubt Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, it's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of ourselves, as a gift of God, not of works, lest we would boast about it. But then in verse 10 it says this, For we, for you and I, for children of God, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he says once we understand what it means to have salvation, salvation is fully predicated upon what Jesus did, not, what on I, not, not based upon what I did or what you did, fully predicated on Jesus. But once we have that salvation, now there has to be something that we do with it. In fact, what I've experienced for a lot of people is that the, the deeper our appreciation for the grace of God, the louder our volume for the service of God. The deeper I come to appreciate it, the deeper I realize, man, Jesus really did all of this for me and that I don't deserve it. The deeper my appreciation becomes about the grace of God, the louder I turn up the volume in my service for God. There's appreciation. There's, there's, man, God, because of what you've done, now there has to be a resulting good work. Not that that good work is saving me, but it's a result of my salvation. And this flies directly in the face of everything that culture has been teaching us probably for the last 20 years. Uh, Madison Avenue and, and what we see on TV and media broadcast this idea that if we can just get enough of our stuff, whatever our stuff is, and for you and I, that stuff might look really, really different. But we think if, if I can just attain, if I can just reach this house, or if I can just really reach uh, this level of my bank account, or if I could just get this degree, or if I could just get this relationship, or if, if I could just get, 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 that those things are going to bring satisfaction. And they've been selling this for some time, and most of us have bought in and said, yeah, if I can just get these things lined up in my life, that I think those things will bring satisfaction. 
And we pursue that, and we pursue that, and we pursue that. And in our lives, we think it doesn't look all that bad. It doesn't look that ugly in our life. I can look at other people and point fingers and think it looks bad in their life. But in my life, I'm not all that like aware of that and pursuing all that stuff. But then I started thinking about some things. Who knows, who knows what a selfie is? Yeah, I think we all know what a selfie is now. People are pointing. You don't want to point fingers. Uh, but, but, but we all know what, it, what a selfie is. Like we know, and, and here's the thing. I'm not here to bash social media, and I'm not here to bash selfies at all. But I am here to talk about a mindset that we have that I'm actually inventing a word this, mo- this morning calling, calling it selfieism. Uh, a selfie is when you take a picture of yourself, and, and some people have perfected the art of taking selfies. They want to get the right lighting and, and hold the camera up just right and make themselves look really good. And, and we understand that. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with this, this selfie-ish culture. You see, if, if society every 20 years tries to uh, rebrand the students that are growing up, we had the baby boomers and then the millennials. If, if there's a name for this generation, we call it the selfie generation. But here's the thing, and it's not to bash social media or any of that stuff, but here's what we do, and we all do this to some extent probably in our lives, is we have a tendency to to try to put forward and, and share on social media and, and share when we're talking to our families about, man, man, look how good my life looks. And we get the picture to look just right. And maybe you're on vacation this summer and he took the picture that was like the perfect moment and we thought, man, this is what I want to put out there as the brand for my life right now. And the problem is that we look at that and we know that was a momentary shot in the midst of the madness that is life. It was like the one moment that our kids behaved and everything was going right. Let me take that picture right now. And then what happens, and here's where the problem lies, is that everybody else does the same thing. And I know my, my, my life, the other 23 hours of the day, and it's not that picturesque. But then I look at other people's photos. I think, man, it seems like their life is always together. And man, their kids, like their kids are always paying attention, and they're always alert, and not having their heads down looking at their phones all day. And man, their, their hair, their kid's hair is always in the right spot because they've done the same thing that you did. But we start to compare ourselves to other people. And there's actually, psychologists have branded a, a new mental health disorder called, called Facebook depression. And it's a real thing. It's based upon this idea that we compare ourselves against others and we look at what they're doing and we think, and, and here's what happens is we create a false persona of our lives. And we start to do something simply because we think, man, if I post just the right picture, I'm going to get a bunch of likes. And we start doing things specifically for a number and not for people. And we care more about the number than we do about people. And we get into a very dangerous, dangerous spot. Because all that is amassing our kingdom. Saying, look at all the stuff that I'm doing. Look at how I can, look at all the stuff. Look at the cool stuff that's happening in my life. And we build ourselves up. And directly into that culture. You see, the idea of selfieism is a blatant disregard for others in the effort to make myself look good. But Jesus comes and says those two things should be flip-flopped. We should have a blatant disregard for self at the expense of saying, man, I want to make God's kingdom as big as I can make it. A blatant disregard for self that I want to make sure, man, if I can bring joy into somebody else's life, if I could do that, that that's what Jesus calls me to do. And here's the thing, selfieism never satisfies. Like the more we do those things, we, we achieve, I mean, maybe right now you have a goal in your life and there's nothing wrong with goals. 
but we think, if I reach that goal, I'm going to reach a level of satisfaction that, that I, I'm going to think I've arrived. But as soon as we reach that, we're like, man, it isn't as good as I thought. Maybe if I just get the next thing in my life, whatever that is. And we keep pursuing those things, thinking those things in and of themselves bring satisfaction. And selfieism and selfishness never bring satisfaction. But service and, sac- and sacrifice always satisfies. And you're in my life when we start to learn the principle that Jesus is about to lay out. Service and sacrifice leads to satisfaction. Flip back to Luke chapter 9. And we want to look at this story, this teaching of Jesus. Luke chapter 9, we're going to look at two different spots real quick. Uh, talking about this idea of what does it look like if, if I'm really going to sacrifice, if I'm really going to, to live the way that Jesus wants me to live, what does that look like? In Luke 9, beginning in verse 23, Jesus teaches also something you might be familiar with. Jesus teaches this teaching. He said to all the people who are following him, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So Jesus at this time has amassed this group of of followers. Uh, Jesus has been teaching, and because he's teaching, here comes this great teacher who teaches with authority. Now, they didn't have the context. Some people knew he was Messiah. Some people just knew, man, this guy teaches unlike anybody I've ever seen before. And he also is performing miracles. And so because of that, some people, just because of his power and his authority, they start to follow him. And they're kind of watching, and they're aware, and they say, man, I want to be more dedicated. And so some of them come to him, and they say, hey, okay, what does it look like for, for me to follow you? And so he says, okay, you want to know what it's like to follow me? Let me explain a couple of things. If you want to follow me, here's the steps. Number one, let's begin by let him deny himself. Now again, this flies directly in the face of everything you and I know about culture. Because culture is dictating for the last 20 years, build yourself up, man, make make yourself feel good. And we have all these big, good statements, and, and everyone wants to feel good, and it sounds really good. And Jesus comes and says, that's all kind of hogwash. That stuff's not going to satisfy. It sounds really good. It looks really good. Put up on a meme on Facebook. But it isn't really bringing satisfaction to your life. Jesus says, you want to know what satisfaction is about? It doesn't begin by lifting yourself up. It begins by saying, I'm going to, I'm going to deny myself some of the things that I thought that I wanted in my life. Man, so countercultural. The thing is, is we've been living according to culture's means for some time. As soon as we do that, as soon as we chase those things, we have to make up names for new depressions we're facing because it's not bringing satisfaction. And so Jesus says, let's go back to what really works. It begins first by denying yourself. The second step is we take up our cross. Now, you and I are at a severe disadvantage when we talk about this one. We're at a disadvantage because we've had 2,000 years of context to understand what Jesus is talking about. So when Jesus talks to you and I about taking up a cross, we think, oh, that's cool. That's what Jesus did for us. And so because of that, the cross has become an endearing uh, symbol of Christianity for 2,000 years. Like people wear crosses as jewelry, and, and, and we celebrate what Jesus did on the cross, and we sing songs about the cross. And so when we talk about taking up the cross, it doesn't seem like it's all that bad. But realize, the early people that are hearing Jesus had no idea. Many of them had no idea that he's eventually going to die on the cross that he's talking about. They knew the cross simply as a cruel torture device meant to kill. They didn't know the cross like you and I know a cross. And because of that, we are at a disadvantage because we hear that. 
And we think, oh, that's cool. That's what Jesus did. And people help him carry the cross. And, and we're supposed to do that on, and, and all that. And so we, we get our context. But Jesus is speaking to people who didn't know that. And he speaks and says, this is how our faith is lived out. First, you deny yourself. And then you take up the cross. And it's not just something you do when it's convenient. But he adds in this word right in the midst of that to say, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. It's not something you and I can just pick up whenever we feel comfortable. Hey, now's a good day. I'm, I kind of have a lot of stuff that I'm taking care of. And I got some free time today. So today, man, I got two hours. I'm going to take up my cross for the next two hours. He doesn't say take it up when it's convenient. He says, man, this is a daily exercise of our spiritual growth that I deny myself. I don't look for out for myself, but I look out for the kingdom, God's kingdom. I look out for others. And then ultimately, I take up my cross on a daily basis. I take up, I know life's going to be uncomfortable, I know life is going to be hard, and I choose to take up that cross. And I can choose either to do hard things now to make my life easier, or do easy things now to make my life harder. So Jesus says, choose the hard things now. Do those things now. And if you do those things, if you deny yourself, and if you take up your cross on a daily basis, then the invitation is now there. Now you can come follow me. Now you can come and, and, and do this, but it begins by denying myself, then to take up my cross on a daily basis, and then the invitation is there to follow him. It was interesting. I shared this a little bit last week, but I was doing some research for the series of messages. And in that, I was, I was looking at what some leading prominent atheists have been saying about Christianity and about faith. And one of the guys I stumbled across I had, this, had this really eloquent teaching that he, that he was into and all this stuff. And, and it, but he said this. He said, man, I wish I could believe in faith. I wish I could have faith in Christianity and all this stuff. Because for him, he said, if I, if I had faith, faith in my life would be really, really comfortable. And I understand even a little bit of that because we understand that the Holy Spirit's job in our life is to provide comfort. He's actually one of the names for the Holy Spirit is to be comforter. We sing songs about resting in the arms of God. Like I understand the comfort side of our faith, but here's the thing. When we truly approach the teaching that Jesus has for our life, it's not a comfortable teaching. It's not a convenient teaching. In fact, it's at times severely uncomfortable. It's at times severely inconvenient. As this guy said, man, I wish I could have faith because faith would be really comfortable. Flying directly in the face of that, I want to bring up a quote right now from Francis Chan. Some of you will know Francis Chan. He's a pastor. He's an author. And Francis Chan said this, but God doesn't call us to be comfortable. God doesn't call you and I to be comfortable. But he calls us to trust him so completely that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. So Francis Chan writing to you and I, he says, listen, God's never called us to a comfortable life. Like if it is, man, that would be really easy. And I think part of the problem of the church in the United States is we like being comfortable. I think most of us, there's, there's nothing wrong with liking being comfortable. We like things that are status quo. We like feeling like, man, we're in control and everything's going to be okay. We don't like taking steps of faith. But Francis Chan writes and says, God doesn't call us to be comfortable. But instead, he calls us to trust him so completely, to have a trust so completely placed in God that when we are, un- so that we are unafraid to put ourselves in situations where we will be in trouble if he doesn't come through. So he's saying, God wants us to trust him so much 
that we willingly place ourselves in positions where, man, we're saying, God, I know I can't do this alone. God, you've called me to do this, and so I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to step out on the water. But as I step out, I know, God, if you don't come through in this situation, that I'm going to be severely in trouble. And God calls us to that type of faith. Now, here's my question, the tough question for the morning. When was the last time we experienced that level of faith? Of saying, man, I'm, I'm going to step out. And when I step out, I'm choosing to trust God so completely that if he doesn't come through right now, I'm going to be in trouble. You see, we like comfortability. We like being, man, if if I just get to a spot where everything's safe and I feel really, like, really safe in my environment, I feel really good. And friends, chances, no, step out of that boat. Get uncomfortable. Get to a spot where if God doesn't come through, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to be in trouble. He says, that's when we start to experience faith. And here's the thing that I've seen. It's as I was thinking about this, this particular quote, I started thinking about in my life, those moments where I started to take those steps, I'm like, God, I don't even know what this is going to look like, but I, I'm, I'm going to choose to be obedient to you. I'm going to choose to follow you, and I believe you're leading me to take this step. And I've looked at other people that I know that right now are taking those steps. I thought about one person in the first service this morning that right now is in the midst of taking one of those giant steps in his life. I thought, man, what a, an, an exhilarating experience to step out saying, God, I don't even know what this is going to look like, but I believe you've called me to do it. And even, those moment, even though those moments are not the moments that we often anticipate when we wake up in the morning, when we take those steps, it's those steps where we most feel connected to our God who says, I'm going to be there with you in the midst of your biggest battles. And it's those moments, at least my experience in life, is is when I feel most exhilarated about life. Like, God, this is crazy. There's no way this should be happening. And, and yet right in the middle of this, I feel this positive momentum. God, I can feel and experience your spirit in my life. And God, when I take that step to be obedient, to be uncomfortable, God, I believe that I have to now lean into you and trust you when I don't feel comfortable. And that's a scary thing. Trusting God. And so Jesus says, here's the deal. If you're going to do this, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be difficult, but go do that. And then he says this, forever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Stop trying to hold on to your life and your kingdom. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I can go get all those things, amass this wealth, and amass all the stuff that I thought was going to bring satisfaction, and it doesn't. And what does that cost me? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus is writing and and he's he's saying these words and he's he's speaking these words about here's what it is. Let's skip over a little bit in Luke chapter 9. We're going to run out of time, but I want to look real quick as he finishes up this portion of the talk. He says, he's talking about the cost of really following him and the cost of discipleship. He says this. It comes upon three people who ask about following him. And the three different stories kind of give these insights into what it means to truly, truly follow Jesus. As they're going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this guy who comes face to face with Jesus says, Jesus, wherever you go, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, you think so. And I think most of us, that'd be our response if you and I came face to face with Jesus. We say, yeah, Jesus, I'm on team Jesus. Wherever you want to go, I'm going to go. But Jesus responds and says this. 
Foxes have, have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Listen, to follow Jesus, to truly follow Jesus, at times is going to be marked by being uncomfortable. Second person comes. To another he said this, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and, and, and bury my father. Jesus' response is, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the first time I heard this, I thought, Jesus, that's cool. Like, the guy just wants to bury his dad. Is there anything wrong with that? But here's the thing. Two things were taking place. Number one is Jesus gave an explicit command to go and do something. And his, his first response is to say, but hold on. But I have an excuse. Because in particular, in the Jewish culture, the second thing, in the Jewish culture, not just the burial, but the grieving process, all the family went through took sometimes a year's length to go through that whole process. And so this guy is saying, but, but hold on, Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but just give me a year to get everything in order and everything in place, and once I get all that stuff done, then I'm going to be okay to, to, to truly follow you. And the point being that for you and I, Jesus calls us at times, at a time that is marked both by uncomfortability, but also Jesus calls us, and the call of Jesus sometimes is also inconvenient. He calls us, and it's not always the, the easiest time or the best moment. But when God's Spirit starts to speak to us about something, if we're disobedient, if we say, man, I, I would love to do that. Like, I feel like God's Spirit is speaking to me right now about something, but, but I'm not ready for that just yet. But give it six months, I think I'll be ready. Give it a year, give it five years. I've got to get married first, or I've got to have children first, or I have to wait till my kids grow up and get really serious about it. Like, there's always going to be something that's going to be there to say, hey, it's an inconvenient time to follow Jesus. Jesus, at times, the call of God is going to be uncomfortable. At times, it's going to be inconvenient. Then to the third person. He had another said in verse 31. He had another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. It does seem like it's that bad of a question. Hey, can I just go say bye to everybody, Jesus? Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. It's fit for the kingdom of God. Listen, when God calls us to do something, if we keep looking back and remember, man, this is how things used to be, and this is how, man, no one, no one is fit to serve in the kingdom of God if we put our hand to the plow, but keep looking back. It's, un- it's, it's uncomfortable, it's inconvenient, but it's also uninterruptible. We can't just interrupt God's kingdom and say, hey, yeah, I know I have this call of God in my life, but I'm going to go back and do these things for a little bit, and I'll come pick it up later because it's not going to work. The plow's not going to work that way. So what does that look like for you and I right now? If we're to sit here at the end of this message and say, how do I start to implement this teaching? Jesus says I'm supposed to call. I'm supposed to deny myself and take up my cross on a daily basis and follow him. So practically speaking, how do we do that? How do I move from being kind of selfish and doing my thing? Not that that's how we all are, but, but how do I learn the, the idea of sacrifice and service? Three ways, real quick, three general ways. Number one, there's no p- more powerful way for us to serve than to find out where we fit in in the local church. God has used the local church as his extension of his kingdom here on earth. And so we find out where we fit in the local church and start to say, I want to make a difference in that particular area. And you might say, but I don't feel like I really have the talents uh, to be able to do some of those things. Like I tried playing guitar and, and I couldn't get the strumming portion right. Or I tried to sing and I'm with you. I don't particularly have a very good voice and I don't feel like that's my, my talent. I don't feel like, like that's where I can serve. There's always something for you to do. See, every one of us at the moment that we're 
saved, God gifts us specifically for work within his church. And it might mean you're super talented to be able to play guitar and to sing. It might mean you're super talented to be an MVP at our church. Our MVPs are people who are standing out front greeting people, shaking hands, because they're the first face people see when they come to Ridgepoint Church. We need some people who are just happy people. Man, just, man, I'm glad that you're here because we truly are glad everybody is here. But we got to make sure we personify that, that we share that message with the world around us. We need some people, man, we're, we're glad that you're here. We need people who love holding kids and, 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 and working in, in the kids' area, holding babies, working in the kids' area. We need people working in youth ministry. We need people just saying, man, I want to serve during the week. If there's things I can do, man, on a consistent basis, the first area we can learn to serve is within the confines of the local church. The second way we can serve is in the community. Now, it can be through events that are organized through the local church. Listen, if you've never participated in the Bloodhound Barbecue that's coming up this coming Friday night, I would encourage you right now before we leave, fill out your connection card. For me, this is one of the, the most fun events. Like you, get to hand, you get to hang out with other RPCers. You get to serve food. You get to eat food. And you get to watch football. It is literally as, as simple as it comes. And it's just, it's, it's just a good time. And, and so it's just a chance to let the community know here's how much you matter to us. And I know that we're kind of a church on the border of both Auburndale and Winter Haven. And so because of that, we have people that are kind of supporting both teams. And that's fine. If you serve on, on Friday night, you get in free. You can sit on either side of the benches you want. Uh, but it's just a chance for us to go and, and to serve. We have this open door to let the community know that we love them. Uh, coming up here shortly, we're going to have a day of service that we're going to be working on, a chance to impact the community in, in, in a very real, real way. Uh, we're not too far away. We're already beginning discussions about what Thanksgiving outreach looks like this year. Uh, some of you took part of that last year. Man, a chance to serve in the community, uh, to do work with, with Jose and them and, and Eloise, a chance to serve in the community, to say, man, how can I make the most immediate impact in this world uh, through God's kingdom? Uh, so it's both local ministry, local community, but then it's also this idea that we can also impact the world. And to me, that seems so crazy. To think that you and I can have an impact beyond our walls, beyond our community, but that you and I can actually make an impact around the world. And every year we start to talk through this idea of, of international missions. And we're actually going to do a series in a couple of months where we're going to talk more about this. But we have great relationships with a couple of groups now in Dominican Republic and, 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 and Honduras. And we get a chance to go. We'll talk about that in a couple of months. But every year that happens, we always get some pushback from people that say, man, it's awesome what you guys are doing internationally. But what about here? There's so much need here. Why do you go overseas and spend all that money when there's so much need here? And I said, listen, number one, you're exactly, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of need here. But we spend 51 weeks out of the year focused on that local need and, and meeting it as best we can. And we spend one week out of the year focusing on international needs. And, and we do that for two reasons. Number one, for anyone, who's, anyone who have, have, has ever had that mindset, I challenge them. Man, go to Honduras with us next year. Go up on a trash dump. And just see these children as young as seven and eight years old that are walking through the trash dump and they're picking up garbage. And that's their living is to try to find recyclables in the trash dump to earn 50 cents that day. And they live where they work. They live in this trash dump. I say, if you want to know why we do what we do, go in the trash dump with us once. You'll understand that. And if that's not enough, number two, and is all I'd even have to say, but the number one, two reason we do it is because Jesus commands us to. He says, be witnesses first in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria, but then literally to the ends of the earth. In our culture, more than any, any other time in history, we have a chance to do that. And we're going to choose to do that. 
So when we look to sacrifice, we look to serve. We begin a local church, we reach out to our community, and then literally we say we want to see God's kingdom advance throughout the world. How does that happen? By you and I making a decision to deny ourselves, take up that cross daily, invest in people's lives, love on people, and truly follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you depicted for us what, what sacrifice looks like when you sent your son here to earth to, to die in our place. God, you put us before yourself. And God, in doing that, you both provided a way for us to have access to you, to give us eternal life because of what Jesus did. But God, you also provided for us the perfect example of how we are to live our lives. And God, there's not a person here that's perfect. But we should try as much as possible, if we're truly followers of Jesus, to embody what he did. To put sacrifice and service above self. God, I pray that you teach us that lesson today. For those who've been longtime followers of Jesus, God, I pray that we embody that. That maybe today was nothing more than a reminder of, man, this is what faith is all about. And it'd be an encouragement, a shot in the arm for us to, to pick up that mantle and truly live out our faith. But God, for one or, or two or five this morning... Maybe they never made that decision before to truly become a follower of Jesus. And we read verses like we read early on in Ephesians. And we understand that it's been by grace through faith that we've come to you. And God, if there's one this morning who say, I never came to Jesus. I didn't know what that was like. God, I pray right now would be the moment of their salvation. God, that you change our life forever from this moment on. God, I pray that you work in our midst. Let us experience your spirit enabling us and empowering us and emboldening us to share your gospel with a lost and dying world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.